You're listening to Below the Radar, a knowledge mobilization project recorded out of 312 Maine. This podcast is produced by SFU's Van City Office of Community Engagement. Below the Radar brings forward ideas to encourage meaningful exchanges across communities. Each episode, we interview guests on topics ranging from environmental and social justice, arts, culture, community building, and urban issues. This podcast is recorded on the unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. Hi, I'm Rachel Wong, and thank you for tuning in to Below the Radar. This week, our host, Amjo Hall, sits down with Kai Nagata, who is the communications director of Dogwood, BC. In this conversation, Kai and Am talk about the purchase of the Trans Mountain Pipeline by the Canadian government in the context of our current climate emergency here in Canada. They also talk about how Dogwood, BC fits into the current political landscape. Kai sees Dogwood BC's role as channeling public anxiety and stress around such issues and working to hold elected government officials accountable. For Kai, the big question that citizens should be asking your governments is who they are really fighting for. Great. Welcome to uh, Below the Radar. Uh, we're really lucky to have Kai Nagata with us, Director of Communications with uh, Dogwood, BC. Welcome, Kai. Thanks a lot for having me. It was a bit of a, a trek to get into studio, so <laughs> sorry <laughs> just, for being just late. Just down the hallway at 312 Main. Uh, well, Kai, you have a lot on your plate going into the fall uh, here. Uh, we're in the middle of a climate uh, emergency, and uh, at basically every level of government, uh, both here in Canada, but also just about everywhere. This is uh, such an important issue. I'm um, wondering if I can sort of uh, just begin of how you're um, reading the political situation uh, into the upcoming federal election in, in October. Well, I can't say that the choices are, are, are super inspiring. You've got a conservative party that's held uh, majority power in Canada in the recent past that uh, seems to be rife with climate change deniers and uh, overly cozy with white supremacists and other unsavory folks. Um, you know, not a lot of folks I talk to want to give those guys a majority government anytime soon. And then you've got a, you know, a liberal party that um, is extremely cozy with the uh, same big corporations that have run Canada since its inception that uh, seems pretty inauthentic in terms of uh, what it promised voters in 2015 versus what it's actually delivered, and which, of course, is planning to build a pipeline with at least $15 billion in public money in the middle of a climate emergency, which is something that uh, a lot of the folks who elected them in 2015 are pretty disappointed about. Then you've got, uh, I don't know if I'll go into the Bloc Québécois and the offshoots from those, but uh, you know there, there are some uh, uh, smaller parties and political formations. Uh, you got a couple independents running in Markham and Vancouver Granville, uh, former cabinet ministers um, that uh, have sort of rebranded themselves as, as independent truth tellers, which I think is is uh, a welcome addition to the parliamentary scene. And then you've got the New Democrats and the Green Party um, who seem to be jockeying uh, for um, those uh, votes of folks who are freaked out about the climate crisis and unhappy with the sort of Pepsi or Coke choices that they've had for the last 150 years. So um, both of those parties struggling to consolidate their vote in enough ridings to have uh, an impact in the next parliament. So if I could pick a preferred outcome, I mean, I think it would be a, 
a minority where you, all of those folks are forced to work together to to pass legislation. But uh, you know, we don't we don't pick the outcomes. We just have to work with them once uh, once voters make the choice. Uh, the the campaign against the Trans Mountain Pipeline has been so interesting because it's taken so many twists and turns over many years, and you've been sort of a front row. Uh, watcher, advocate, organizer uh, around this, and just with the when the federal government went in and actually uh, bought the pipeline, uh, that was uh, quite alarming uh, in and of itself. Let alone kind of what's happening in the background now, the financing issues and um, other regulatory pieces, the the recent approval. I'm wondering if you can sort of uh, walk us through uh, sort of the ups and downs of that process of organizing, because there's been a lot of uh, amazing coalition work that's uh, happened. Uh, particularly here in BC. Sure. So I'll start earlier before the the Trans Mountain project was proposed when the sort of flagship idea to get uh, Alberta bitumen to the West Coast was the Northern Gateway Pipeline through the uh, Great Bear Rainforest, as it's known, or through Northern BC, territories of the coastal First Nations. And we saw this unprecedented alliance of First Nations communities and uh fishing families and um, folks in coastal industries, as well as just people up and down the province who said, no, that's a bridge too far. We don't want oil tankers going through um, the North Coast. And it seemed like a much simpler kind of black and white debate when it was Stephen Harper and the Chinese state-owned oil companies in Enbridge trying to force a pipeline through, uh, you know, a bunch of, um, uh, I won't say untouched, but... um, uh, a, a part of BC that had sort of a mythical space in people's imagination as like the home of the spirit bear and all the humpback whales. And um, for folks in Vancouver, that was really galvanizing. It was really, really clear and easy fight. And uh, and after that project was defeated, of course, the um, oil companies put the foot on the gas to get Trans Mountain through as the sort of hedge strategy. And that has been a much different debate. And in a way, it's, it's, it's strange to me when you step back and look at it because it's a bigger project that would put far more people uh, at risk in terms of um, flaming tanks of diluted bitumen or oil spills. And, uh, you know, it goes through a bunch more political turf, a lot more politically sensitive area than northern BC, which only has a few ridings, a few representatives. And yet we've seen an erosion of the sort of level of public animosity towards the project over years and years and years as the oil patch is engaged in a bunch of parallel um, and very effective strategies to uh, to to demotivate and confuse and in some cases downright misinform people. And so we're at a point where um, you know a project like this has never been so close to getting across the goal line, uh, even as we're in the middle of a climate emergency. And you've got a federal government that is actually um, not just backing it with uh, state resources in terms of cash to build the thing, but threatening to use you know, defense forces, i.e., the military um, and other. Uh, tools at their disposal in order to force this thing through. It's become a national priority. And uh, so it's interesting to reflect back on, on like you say, those twists and turns and think about, um, you know, where where we went uh, wrong as a movement to, to find ourselves in this in this position now and, uh, you know, where there might be some hope going forward. But yeah, we're in a situation where, you know, you have a, a, a liberal centrist uh, prime minister who was elected on... Uh, a whole suite of uh, climate promises, saying that no relationship is more important to him than uh, that of, you know, Canada and its indigenous peoples. Uh, and here he is trying to ram through a pipeline without consent or permission from local communities, and using our taxpayer dollars to do that. So, um, it's been uh, an 
interesting ride, and I think that stepping back from it, I, I can see uh, some of the points where, um, you know, in a sense, it was a lot simpler when it was like mean conservative politicians trying to force this thing through, and people now are dealing with the fact that uh, as they look at the federal election, there's another party that they really don't want to get elected, uh, sort of lurking in the wings, and so a lot of folks are being pressured to support. The, the liberals, even though they're trying to ram through the, the pipeline in BC, uh, just out of fear of electing the conservatives if they don't. At, at this stage where the recent approval just uh, went through, from an organizer's perspective, uh, what kind of tools and strategies do you have at this stage in terms of uh, disrupting, slowing down? Are there legal means or other organizing means that you would be uh, taking part in in terms of the environmental movement? Yeah, so there's a there's a couple of parallel strategies underway, and I think that um, you, you can't ignore the uh, significance and impact, obviously, of the uh, of the uh, court challenges that have been brought, um, mostly by indigenous communities and also by some uh, conservation and environmental groups. And uh, you know, really, those are about forcing Canada to follow its own laws as they are written, um, to follow its own constitution, and to uh, make decisions about projects like this on the basis of Canadian law. So those challenges have been successful in the past in installing both the Enbridge Northern Gateway Pipeline and, and Trans Mountain. But the the government seems intent on building even while those matters are before the courts. And so there are other strategies that, that have to be brought to bear if you want to put friction on a project like that. And so those are the political strategies. And because there's no longer the option of putting pressure on shareholders, now that it's publicly owned, it's essentially nationalized, you can't go to, into boardrooms in Houston or New York and say, this is a bad investment. So that avenue is closed, uh, but it does open up the option of, of direct uh, political pressure on the MPs who would have to sign off on buying and paying for the expansion. And so that's where we see our role is basically channeling some of that public uh, anxiety and distress around the, the climate emergency towards um holding their members of parliament accountable and uh, making it clear that they don't support spending public money on uh, you know another massive subsidy to the oil industry when that money, $15 billion, could be spent on any number of other priorities. And so we found that is the most effective message, and that is what the federal government handed us when they bought the pipeline and, and vowed to complete it with public dollars, is that everybody has an opinion about how public money should be spent and whether you characterize it as tax dollars using you know the rhetoric developed by Grover Norquist and the Republicans or you talk about public money um, everyone has ideas about where they would spend fifteen dollars fifteen billion dollars and 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 a pipeline is very low on that list of priorities so when we worked in Burnaby South in the by-election earlier this year we went and talked to people on the doorstep and asked them about what they needed from the federal government and most people, their top two answers were, were better public transit and more affordable housing, both of which are within the federal government's bailiwick, and they could put billions of dollars into those problems and make people's lives better in a material sense uh, in the short term. And and then when you ask them, how do you feel about them spending that money on you know building another pipeline through Burnaby, that's when you can really see um, public opinion turn. And so I think that is the... Um, that is the question. And that that is actually, um, if you ask it about public money, you still have a large majority of Canadians on side. They don't want 
their tax dollars going to building this thing, especially in the context of the climate emergency. And so you need to be able to channel that and put that in front of politicians and uh, either convince them not to support that expenditure or if you uh, are faced with a politician who's who's bound and determined to to push that through, then to hold them accountable to the ballot box. So there was recently an election uh, in the province of uh, Alberta. Uh, four years before, I was actually in Fort McMurray the night that uh, Rachel Notley got elected. Wow, that must and, have been surreal. <laughs> yeah, very, very surreal. And and uh, certainly since Jason Kenney's been uh, elected, he's uh, brought um, a lot of uh, uh, aggression uh, uh, around uh, attacking civil society organizations, uh, be it their funding, being their approach, and also building a kind of PR uh, war room to go against uh, any kind of opposition to the pipeline. It's quite unprecedented in terms of uh, the scale, in terms of recent memory of the last couple of, of, of decades. And, and and I'm wondering how uh, people in the environmental uh, community have been addressing or dealing with uh, Alberta government resources going into um, uh, this level of uh, aggressive public relations strategy and media management? Well, I have a few thoughts on that. I think that, um, you know, it's another it's another subsidy. It's really interesting to see public money being spent on uh, oil industry propaganda. And I think we got a sense of why that might be when some folks complained to the um, Canadian Advertising Standards uh, Body. I can't remember what the organization is called. And basically the response was, that if it's a government ad, um, the same standards around accuracy don't apply. So it's a loophole. If if industry is advertising as the government, then they can say whatever they want about the project and they're held to a lower standard than if it was a private advertiser. So you have this merger of state and corporate interests in Alberta that's been going on for a long time. This is just a, the most explicit and recent example. Um, and I think it's, uh, you know, it is a sad commentary on... Uh, a government that has painted itself so far into a corner that it has no, it has nothing to offer its own people in terms of a vision uh, for an economy that might um, that that might be exciting to be part of, other than uh, to to just let uh, international oil companies build whatever they want um, with public money. So, yeah, Kenny um, promises to you know file lawsuits and hire a bunch of guys to whatever reply on internet forums and social media and correct the record and uh i think he's honestly kind of spinning his wheels he made the promise during the campaign and now he has to deliver and show albertans that he's going to bat for them but if their material circumstances don't change and if they don't feel like their lives are getting better there's a certain point at which that same anger that elected Jason Kenney starts to turn against Jason Kenney. And so I think he's got to stay ahead of that as best he can. And he's going to try to um, create external enemies and spend as much energy and money as he can trying to direct that anger outwards and stoking that narrative of victimization and saying that, you know, Alberta's hard done by and the rest of the country's ganging up on them. But at a certain point, people are going to start to ask uh, if there's anything else uh, that their politicians are going to offer them other than you know, just trying to blame uh, other people for their for their own policy choices. So I'm, you know, my glib response is it's a great gift in the environmental movement. It's a great fundraising opportunity. You know, having a, a you know, a big, mean uh, oil industry affiliated premier appointing a bunch of 
industry executives to cabinet and then spending a bunch of public money going after us by name. That's always good for uh, mobilizing people, organizing people, fundraising. Uh, but I do worry long term about the government getting into this game because I think that um, sooner or later people are going to start to take it offline and they are playing with some pretty dangerous currents in Alberta society right now and and um, ginning people up about uh, scapegoats and outside enemies and um, you know minorities and environmentalists, I think that those targets start to merge in people's brains. And there's a lot of online threats that I worry about, uh, you know, moving to the to the offline real world space. And I think that the Alberta government is now uh, complicit in um, amplifying that sort of uh, anger and, and hysteria. So um, I, I don't think this ends well. Um, and uh, it is distressing to see Again, uh, public money being spent on that instead of any number of other programs or, or services that they could offer the people of Alberta. Yeah, oftentimes uh, in uh, looking at the expansion of, of pipelines, the arguments that are uh, invoked by government or industry have to do with economic uh, benefits. And there are some uh, in the environmental movement and others that come from a more fiscal conservative background from Alberta. Interestingly, when uh, Matt Hur and I were working on a book, after the book came out, we got contacted by some of these groups around real concerns around the financial viability of uh, the oil sands and the extent to which Canadian chartered banks and others were financially uh, exposed. Yeah, and, they're up um, to their eyeballs. Yeah, I'm just wondering to what extent uh, those economic arguments the environmental movement has uh, deconstructed, because oftentimes it's just taken as a as a truism that the uh, expand expanding the the tar sands are an economic benefit in a broad sense. And um, how uh, what your critique is of that. Well, I think there's a difference between economic benefit for oil CEOs and banks and economic benefit for the people of Alberta, the workers in the industry, or the people of Canada more broadly. And I think that our politicians have been a little bit too quick to conflate those two when they talk about the economic benefits or the national interest. They're more often repeating the talking points given to them by the banking lobbyists and the and the oil CEOs. So, you know, to give a, 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 a example that... Um, that other folks have used, uh, the jobs in Alberta are not coming back, even if there's a, you know, a boom in investment, um, you know, automation and corporate consolidation is going to uh, limit the number of actual human beings that you need driving those trucks or, um, or operating controls in oil field operations. Uh, and that trend is unlikely to reverse anytime soon. So, if you're relying on big mega projects to create employment, then you're stuck in a cycle where you have to be breaking ground on something really big every couple of years in order for those contractors to be able to move around and uh, and continue to have work. Um, you know, when it comes to pipeline construction, there there would be uh, you know a number of Canadian folks who who would be employed and are employed uh, building out new pipeline infrastructure. There's also a highly mobile international workforce of people who specialize in these kinds of projects. And when you have such low unemployment numbers as we have in Canada and so many projects being built, um, there's actually a need to to import, whether it's unskilled labor from from other countries or, uh, or highly skilled, highly specialized labor from other countries that reduces the amount of employment that, uh, that goes to Canadian communities or which stays in, in Canada. You know, and then finally, um, the the idea that uh, 
deepening our dependence on a single commodity, a single export resource, in this case, uh, heavy crude oil, in the current context, just seems like uh, a shaky bet when you are looking at whether it's new marine fuel standards coming in that will limit the use of high sulfur fuels in, in transport ships worldwide, or you're looking at uh, efforts in China to electrify bus fleets and passenger vehicles, um, or you're looking at uh, folks in India leapfrogging uh, some of the uh, traditional fossil fuel uh, energy sources and going straight to renewables. It doesn't, to me, look like a bright future for crude oil exports, but we don't really have the choice uh, in, in, in Canada um, of, uh, it, it's very hard to question that when, when you're dealing with uh, so much um, propaganda, frankly, coming from the banks that are invested in these projects now and the companies that uh, have committed to this business model of, uh, you know, it's called rip and ship economics, right? Just getting crude oil out of the ground as fast as possible and, and, and liquidating it offshore. I, I worry sometimes that, um, that that is the end game, that basically companies can read the newspaper and they can uh, see the writing on the wall. And what they want to do is basically get as much oil out of the ground now at current prices as they can, regardless of where it goes or what price it gets, because that is better than having to write off reserves that have to stay underground if and when the, the world gets uh, gets its act together and limits uh, you know, uh, oil consumption. So this idea uh, that we're being fed that this will lead to some new golden age of prosperity in Alberta and that it will pay for the, the renewable energy transition I think is um, uh, pretty hard to substantiate. It looks more to me like you have a bunch of, of banks and uh, oil companies that are worried about losing money, and they would rather sell oil now at 50 or 60 bucks a barrel than try to sell it tomorrow at 20 or zero. Uh, so here in BC, we have an uh, NDP and a green um, uh, government. And I'm wondering uh, here in the province uh, what the nature of your campaigns have looked like. There's been some high-profile um, uh, issues like Site C, LNG expansion, um, and others. And wondering what the political context looks like for you in terms of advancing environmental policy. So for the last uh, 10, 12 years, like a lot of the um, oxygen has been sucked up by these pipeline campaigns in BC, often to the exclusion of uh, other campaigns, which which is unfortunate. Um, so, you know, when Dogwood was first started uh, 20 years ago, we were focused on uh, local forestry issues, on urban sprawl. You know, and the idea has always been to try to arm people with um an analysis and the tools to participate in their democracy at that local level and to give people more self-determination as a community over what happens uh, to their land and to their resources. And so we've worked with First Nations and local communities in BC to try to uh, amplify the, the voices of local people against big corporations, oftentimes from far away, uh, and, and governments that, uh, that have not been responsive to those local concerns. So, you know, that very quickly got sucked into uh, these two massive pipeline and oil tanker fights. And a lot of our focus at the provincial level has been about trying to uh, get provincial politicians to stand up for their constituents, especially on the coast, in the face of these big uh, international oil mega projects. In purchasing the Trans Mountain Pipeline, Trudeau has handed us a really interesting 
situation where the, the project cannot go forward without public money. And so the conversation becomes about our priorities as a country and how we spend uh, our tax dollars. And it's becoming clear that the, the big mega projects in Canada can no longer stand up on their own two feet. Uh, and in the context of, um, of climate change and, and climate action worldwide, it's going to take more and more corporate welfare just to get these big mega projects built. And so not just Trans Mountain, but the uh, the the Royal Dutch Shell and uh, Petronas uh, consortium that wants to um, export a bunch of fracked gas from from Kitimat. You know the uh, LNG Canada project uh, doesn't have a single Canadian partner. It's all foreign state-owned oil companies and and Shell, uh, and they are going to pull down six billion dollars in subsidies from the provincial government. Um, in return for for gracing us with their presence in BC, and so you have this situation where governments are competing, you know, falling over themselves to offer these lucrative tax breaks and incentives to global oil companies in order to come and and perch in their jurisdiction and extract the resources there, and so you know this has forced us to look at our own backyard, uh, and and the the whole uh, subsidy angle. Uh, has us looking at Site C in a different light. If, in fact, the ratepayers uh, in BC are building a mega dam in order to power fracking operations in the Northeast um, or to power you know, liquefaction of, uh, of, of gas at terminals, that is an indirect subsidy to industry on the order of billions of dollars. And if we're going to offer cheap power to these companies in order to convince them to stay and to extract our resources, that is a subsidy. And so... It is forcing us to look at how um, these pieces fit together. It's not just about one pipeline or about one one project or one company. It's about a system where taxpayers have a parasitic relationship with these international oil companies that are, in fact, absorbing a, a lot more public resources than what is obvious on paper. And when you add up all of the infrastructure that we build for them, and the and the discounts and tax breaks that we give them, um, and the revenue that we don't collect, whether that's on on royalties or corporate taxes, or the stuff that they manage to uh, to ferry out of the country and sock away in international accounts and tax havens, you're looking at billions and billions of dollars a year that is unavailable to the government to spend on any other program uh, or or priority, and so it's. Um, you know, it's forcing a rethink of our of our campaigns at the provincial level. I will say that for now we're focused on on federal politics, and that is the the window that's opened up. The federal election provides an opportunity to talk to people about federal issues, but after that, uh, we're going to be taking a hard look at the degree to which the BC government uh, has traditionally subsidized these massive international companies, and and asking whether the benefits that accrue to British Columbians are are in any way equal to what we are giving away in order to convince them to stay. Now, in the uh, provincial context, you were uh, Dogwood was uh, also involved in the campaign around proportional representation, and some time has uh, passed since that campaign was over, but wondering if you have any thoughts uh, about or uh, ideas about uh, why that um, uh, plebiscite uh, uh, wasn't successful. I think that the 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 only way that a sort of change campaign is successful is if you can make the case that the current circumstances are intolerable and that um, 
if people are are willing to uh, to vote for change, that their their circumstances will change. Uh, listen, I think um, there were there were mistakes made all round, including at Dogwood. We were just one of the third parties that was uh, a participant. There were dozens of others on on both sides of the issue. Um, you know, and we took the position that uh, that proportional representation on balance uh, would provide for um, you know more power for individual British Columbia citizens and perhaps an escape from the the sort of ping pong game of successive liberal and NDP governments that has uh, led to um, some of the the policies that I've described earlier I think um, what was what was difficult was uh, you know crafting a uh, coherent narrative about what was wrong, and I don't think that collectively, as the as the yes campaign, we were able to articulate the problem and the solution early enough in the campaign. And so, the no side, uh, which had some pretty talented communicators uh, on on their uh, in their ranks, including uh, Bill Thielman, who I know has been on this show, um, they very successfully uh, built a story about uh, the the uncertainty and hassle of switching to a, a different voting system where all the details hadn't been ironed out. And I think for most people, uh, the choice became pretty easy uh, since since the, the change wasn't linked to any kind of like um, great crisis in their own life or, or uh, you know, a, a looming situation that they found uh, intolerable or unable to, to sustain. And so, yeah, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't a high stakes uh, referendum uh, for most voters in British Columbia, evidently, since they didn't participate. And so, yeah, I think we could have told a story about, uh, um, you know, the ways in which corporate control of our political parties lead to uh, outcomes for everyday British Columbians that are that that are contributing to the the anxiety and despair that people feel about their own. Uh, household finances or their or their or the environment, but uh, you know we didn't we didn't go with that uh, with that message, and I think that um, uh, the results speak for themselves. People at BC made a choice, and we have to respect that. Yeah, you know, interesting when when the STV ones were uh, happening in the the nineties, the couple of uh, referendums that ran during the elections, I always felt that if they had gone with MMP as an option, then when there seemed to be an appetite that it likely would have passed, or in this instance, it might've been far closer had there been a specific option rather than one of three, it had been MMP versus the status quo, it could have been closer, but woulda, shoulda, coulda. Yeah. But I imagine we'll be talking about this again in uh, in, in, in 25 in 10, years. In 25 years or, or 10. Yeah. Things move quickly these days. Yeah. Um, I had a question around uh, the federal um, Green Party uh, environmental plan um, that includes sort of some version of an Energy East uh, type campaign. It's kind of an old... Um, uh, 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 energy nationalism mm-hmm. sort of plan uh, that was uh, floated in Canada in the fifties and the sixties. Yeah, uh, but it was it was yeah idea. It, yeah it was it was an it's an interesting nationalist argument. But I wasn't expecting the Green Party to be putting it uh, out there. But I'm wondering what your political reading of of their platform is around uh, environmental policy. Well, I, I think you know that that part was. Um was a little baffling. The entire document felt rushed, and I think that the goal was to get it out ahead of the NDP climate plan. That that seems to be tactically uh, what what led to the timing of the release. And yeah, there's a there's a 
a section in there about making Canada basically energy independent, and uh, and that would mean that we would stop imports of foreign oil. And on the East Coast, that means that you have to supply refineries, presumably, uh, which are in like Lévis and St. John, New Brunswick, and are served by tankers. So if those aren't going to be served by tankers anymore from quote unquote foreign oil sources, you got to build a pipeline <laughs> or find some other way of getting crude oil to them because they don't have a lot of oil production in those provinces. So it was an odd chapter, I guess, in Canadian environmentalism. I don't know uh, whether the Greens will be in a position to implement this grand vision, but the the difficulties were made apparent on day one when the Quebec Green Party said, no effing way. Like, uh, we are not going to sign on to this because you would have to build a pipeline through Quebec and we just beat Energy East. So I think that was, uh, um, you know, I, I applaud the Green Party for th- throwing ideas out there that that uh, other parties uh, aren't willing to grapple with, seeing where they land. In this case, I think that one was a bit of a bit of a dud. Any uh, final message for our audiences as they uh, think about uh, who they're going to be voting for in the federal election? Yeah, I would really encourage people to uh, take a look at who is running in their riding. And uh, we'll have a website up where you can punch in your postal code and find out who is actually uh, running to represent you in the community where you live, because one of those people is going to be your member of parliament after the federal election. And in Canada, what a lot of us forget is that we cannot vote for the prime minister. We are not voting for even a political party. We are voting for a list of people uh, who are competing for one spot to represent us as the MP. And then those MPs get together and debate policy and uh, choose a leader. Actually, it's up to parliament who the prime minister is. So unlike the United States, there are no primaries, you know, for the party nominations that uh, that the public can participate in. And we don't get to choose the president or the prime minister in an election. And so rather than focusing on this national horse race and the campaign that the big news outlets will be, you know, resourcing and riding the buses and bringing us coverage every day. I would encourage people to spend what energy they have to spend on politics, looking at the people running locally, because a lot of the strategic voting narratives and a lot of the, the, you know, the, the national campaigns you're going to hear are going to sound something like, uh, you don't like these guys. So vote for these guys to stop them. And that is just not accurate or helpful in most local ridings in BC. Uh, There are unique local dynamics and there are unique local candidates that are running uh, for a variety of parties and some of them as independents across BC. And we want to elect, I think, a diverse mix of people from different perspectives who are going to fight for their constituents and have a relationship and are accountable to people at that local level. And if we roll the dice and we end up with a minority government, it's going to become that much more important to have a relationship with your local MPs that you can pressure them on the policies that matter to you because things will be a lot more volatile, as we've seen in the provincial context with the uh, the Greens holding the, the balance of power. And it'll be up to citizens what those MPs prioritize and what policies they support. So if you are worried about the climate crisis, absolutely, you got to wake up and, and worry about the whole wide world and all the bad things that are happening. But when it comes time to voting, I would encourage people to really focus down on the local level and look at who is running and they're riding. Thank you so much for joining us, Kai. And we didn't even talk about Donald Trump once. 
Oh, it feels good, doesn't it? <laughs> Thanks for having me. Thanks. Thank you again to Kai Nagata for joining us on Below the Radar. If you want to learn more about Dogwood BC and what they do, you can visit them at their website, dogwoodbc.ca. We've linked to them in the episode description below. Thank you as always to the team that helps to put this podcast together, our production team, which includes myself, Rachel Wong, and Maria Cecilia Sapa. Thanks also to Davis Steele for our theme music. And of course, thanks to you for listening. We'll talk to you next time on Below the Radar. <laughs>